The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Boy, 19 years in prison. Today is the fourth in the series of The Gift of Exoneration. Um, in partnership with the Northern California Innocence Project. Frankie Carrillo was convicted of a 1991 murder based on identification testimony from six people, including the victim's son. These six, who gave statements against him, said they were influenced to identify him and admitted they did not really see anything. There are two other men who confessed to the shooting and said Carrillo was not involved, and the eyewitness, who was the first to implicate Carrillo, in 1991, took the witness. He implicated him in 1991, but he recently took the witness stand and apologized to Carrillo, saying he was willing to accept punishment because he knew that it was wrong and that he had stolen the life of an innocent man. How about that? Well, at least he admitted it, but it doesn't give back those 19 years. Frankie's here with us today. Good morning to you, Frankie. Good morning, Francie. Hi. Thank you for being here. Thanks for Let having me. me. And let me just say, this is Francisco Frankie Carrillo. He's now 37 years old. He was 16 when he went to Folsom Prison to serve two life terms for a drive-by shooting. He was tried tri- twice. The t- first jury deadlocked, but then he was convicted. He became a suspect after law enforcement believed Frankie was the person in another shooting due just a simple mix-up in street names. But after his sentencing, a new eyewitness came forward saying that it wasn't Frankie and the trial judge, I guess this was a motion for a new trial at the time, the trial judge denied the request. So here we are, right away his innocence was proclaimed and years later when they started investigating the case, notes were found in the investigator's file where the same witness admitted not only that that it wasn't Frankie, but he admitted participation in the crime. So then finally, a witness admitted that he had identified Frankie's photo based on information provided to him by law enforcement. And then he told the other five witnesses, who then chose the same photo from the six-pack photo lineup. You know, every time I hear these cases... I think it can't get any worse. And every time I just shake my head at how people can go to prison for so long with and be innocent and nobody listens. Nobody listens. So also joining the show is Matria Badami. 
Hello, Matria. Good morning, Francie. Thanks for being here. She's a supervising attorney at the Northern California Innocence Project. Besides investigating and litigating claims of wrongful conviction based on factual innocence, she's also involved in the policy to reform the procedures in California police departments using and obtaining eyewitness identification evidence. Much needed area. For 16 years before joining NCIP, she was a deputy public defender, was in private practice, and has litigated both trial and appellate cases in California state and federal courts. And she's been a panel attorney for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and litigating direct appeals and habeas corpus petitions. Habeas corpus petitions are the ones that when all uh, remedies are eliminated, they're gone, they've been used up. They can file a habeas corpus petition and bring up new evidence. Good morning to you both. Thank you for being here. So let's let's start, Frankie, um, with you're nine, you're 16 years old and you're arrested. Right. And you're and you. This was in LA, correct? Correct. Okay. And what happened right away? What do you remember going through right away? Um, right away, the, the first thing that comes to mind was just the confusion. Um, it seemed like there was a lot of um, interest in me, the wrong person. I just felt like, how could that be? Um, I was obviously very, excuse me, very young and um, confused and, and afraid, obviously. Um, but I just figured, I really felt as a boy, as a young man, that eventually someone would figure this out, someone meaning an adult. Because I was so young, and this would be resolved, but obviously that wasn't the case. Yeah, and you were tried as an adult, correct? I, I was. So because the crime was was that of murder, and obviously a serious crime, um, the DA, and along with the court, had had an obligation, or maybe just a um, an option, to try me as an adult, and so they did. Mm-hmm. And you were you appointed a public defender? I was. So. Um, you know, my, my family, you know, we're not a wealthy family in any stretch of the means of the word. And so we just, you know, really it, what, it, what it came down to, I can recall my parents asking, you know, we can get some money together from the family and friends. And my position was there's no need. There's no, re- there's no need to waste money. I didn't do this. Let them just give me whatever attorney um, they, they, you know, they deem appropriate and this proceeds. So, you know, to answer your question, yeah, I had a public defender. And you also, did you also have an investigator working on the case? Well, I, I didn't have one. The attorney, we didn't hire an investigator, but the attorney had, had an investigator. So there was a two-person team that was representing me. And so would they come back, I mean, were they actually doing an investigation or, or was it just because the eyewitness identification was so strong there wasn't a lot they could do? Well, in my opinion, there was a lot of things they could have done. Um, okay. combined with the, the attorney and the investigator, but they either chose not to or felt that it was it would be a waste of time. You know, one of the things that, you know, in hindsight now, but they should have caught it right away, was that um, the boys who were who testified against me were making these allegations about which school that I attended and tattoos that apparently that I had um, and a bunch of other, other claims that if, if followed up upon early on would have just casted more doubt on their testimony, but Mm-hmm. Apparently, the attorney and the investigator just thought it wasn't important. So they were saying you had tattoos that you didn't have. Right. And they were saying you went to a school that you didn't attend. Exactly. Huh. You know, also, yeah, so I mean, I mean, so it's just things of that nature. But 
ultimately, you know, I have to agree that the, the witness they had against me was, was pretty solid. The guy was coming in there saying, and not only saying, but coming to court and pointing at me, saying that I was a person. So, you know, just based on that, they were they were moving forward with the case. Did you even know these guys that were pointing you out? I didn't. So as a boy, I lived, we all lived in the same city, just different parts of the city, a city of Linwood. Yes. Um, but, but then my family and I moved to Maywood, which is about 20, 20 miles away. And so these these young boys, all the were about the same age. I, I didn't know who they were. It's it's a pretty big city, and I just didn't, you know. So they didn't. It wasn't because they had anything against you. They didn't know you either. They didn't have any idea who you were. Exactly. Okay. And so now, from what I understand, the one witness right. um, identified you based on guidance from the. From the detectives, is that is that right. a good way of putting putting it? That's well, that's a nice way of putting it. Do you, how do you think that? How did that happen? Do you know? Do you know what they well, said to him? Well, the the core of this is just bad police work, or more specifically, bad sheriff's work. Um, there's no way around that. Um, if you want to call it corruption, or being a dirty cop, or being unethical, it's all of that combined. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it, it's this overzealous desire to want to close a case. And tragically, in my case, the man who was murdered was an innocent bystander, which made it doubly more important for the sheriff's department, you know, to resolve this. And under those pressures from the community or from within, they're willing to do whatever necessary to get that case resolved. And, and, and tragically for me and other people, these practices ruin lives. All right. Yes. So I'd like to pop in yes, just with some of do. the more specifics of, of, of you know, what Frankie's referring to and the overzealousness and the dirty cop. Um, the, the sheriff's deputy who was going through photographs with this witness, um, directed him toward a photograph of Frankie in the, because on a couple of different occasions, the guy, the, the witness was kind of pointing at someone who might possibly, who might look familiar, who he might have thought he saw. And on more than one occasion, this sheriff's deputy told him, well, it couldn't have been him. Because that guy, in one instance, is in jail, or that guy is was couldn't have been there at that time. I mean, he actually gave him this feedback um, to say, well, "It's not the person you're pointing to; it must be someone else," and therefore, you know, really communicated in a fairly direct way to this witness that he knew who it was and he was going to lead him there. And so, when he eventually uh, the witness points to Frankie's picture as being a possible person. Then he gives him positive feedback, saying something to the nature of, you know, well, this one is trying to make a name for himself. Um, so he really, this deputy, you know, gave, he directed the witness to a particular photograph um, huh. in a way that, you know, no, no police officer would ever believe was appropriate. Uh-huh. conduct that that's uh-huh. not that's contrary to any training that any of them have ever had so it's certainly it's not just a, a lack of a good policy for example in this instance this is direct misconduct but there are policies which we can get to later but there are policies that could prevent such misconduct right. in a lot of cases from being able to happen as well as uh as make it a lot as protect innocent suspects from inadvertent queuing that officers might do who are not actually committing misconduct. We'll get back to that later, but I just wanted to point out the well, specifics here. Yeah, let, we might as well talk about that now because I'm sure that if law enforcement folks that are listening to the show, and we do have a number, 
are just chilled by this because this is so contrary to anything they ever are trained or directed to do. So, Absolutely. so why don't you go ahead with that, Matreya? All right. Well, you know, in Frankie's, I, first of all, I should note, I was not one of the lawyers on Frankie's case. Um, okay. I actually came to NCIP after his case was well underway and his, his lawyers at NCIP were Paige Kaneb and Linda Starr. And then Ellen Eggers on her own as a pro bono attorney worked on his case. And then we had the pro bono assistance of Morrison and Forster in the case. So Frankie had a tremendous legal team, sure huge did. amount of work, huge amount of work went into reinvestigating his case and all of the eyewitnesses in his case ultimately recanted. Several of them came to a hearing in the habeas corpus, uh, in the habeas corpus proceeding and testified that they had actually not seen uh, what they initially had testified at trial that they saw. And there was also, we put together a reenactment and actually showed the judge. The judge went to the street corner where this drive-by shooting occurred. Really? The same time of day as the, because it, it was dark when the shooting occurred and mm-hmm. stood at the same distance and a car drove by. And it was completely obvious that the shooter could not have been seen um, f- from that distance, at that angle, at that time of day. It's simply not possible, but the judge actually was able to see it for his own, for himself. That's amazing. And, how did that, right, and then how we, did that happen? <laughs> the um, judge you know, happen. in this case, there was a tremendous amount of cooperation with the Los Angeles uh, District Attorney's Office. They, they became convinced at some point in the course of their own reinvestigation of the case of the strong likelihood that Frankie was innocent. And once that, once some people in a position of authority came to that realization, then all the necessary steps were able to be taken. That isn't always the truth in our cases. We're not always able to get someone to hear us. Mm -hmm. But in Frankie's case, the proper people got convinced early enough in the proceedings to really be sure that every step was able to be taken in our habeas corpus litigation. That's phenomenal. And in terms of the initial identification in Frankie's case, this deputy directed the first witness to a photograph of Frankie. Um, in a, in the, the witness had been looking through a large number of photos. Then the detective put together, I mean, the sheriff's deputy put together what's called a six pack, which is, as investigators are familiar, it's, you know, an array of photographs, usually six. That's why it's called that in which the suspect, which is the person the police believe is the perpetrator, is one of the six, and the other five are what are called fillers. Those are selected because they resemble enough the suspect to not cause the suspect to stand out. Mm-hmm. And the witness is shown the array and, you know, asked whether or not they recognize anyone. They're asked questions. They're supposed to be given some admonitions. For example, the actual perpetrator may not be present in these photos. Um, you shouldn't feel pressured to select someone. That's an example of an admonition. Mm -hmm. So in Frankie's case, after the witness had been directed to a particular photo, then that photo was put in an array and he selected that photo. He then told the other five witnesses that he picked the picture in position number. Was it one, Frankie? It was picture number one, correct. In position number one. And they showed the same photo array in the same configuration to the other witnesses. Mm -hmm. Each of them selected photograph number one. Of course. None of them saw the perpetrator of the crime. And as you said earlier, we had, we ultimately, there's been evidence developed to demonstrate who the actual perpetrators of the crime were and that it wasn't Frankie. But at that time, you know, none of them saw anything. They, they weren't able visually to actually see the perpetrator, but they went ahead and followed the cue of their friend who followed the very direct guidance of this sheriff's deputy. And 
there are proceed, you know, in, in one of the things that we're working on in terms of policy work at NCIP, uh, we're partnered with all sorts of people around the state and around the country in trying to bring about reform of the procedures that police use to develop their eyewitness evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the legal requirements for eyewitness evidence were set in stone essentially by Supreme Court cases in the late 60s and early 1970s. And they weren't based on any kind of science. They were based on sort of the, the experience and hunches of the justices. And in the ensuing 30 years, there's been thousands and thousands of scientific studies that look at the the nature of memory, the nature of perception and recall, and explain why it is that eyewitnesses so frequently get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And we know that eyewitnesses get it wrong because in the DNA exonerations, of which there are more than 300 now uh, nationwide, 75% of those cases in which we're absolutely certain of the innocence of the defendant were the result of one or more mistaken eyewitnesses. Yeah. So it's the number one cause of, mis- of uh, wrongful conviction among those that were exonerated via DNA. And it's probably the most powerful evidence that a de- prosecutor ever puts on. Absolutely. Frankie just right. talked about when, when Scott came into court. T- talk about how we, talk about him. Tell us about sure. him. Sure. You, you know, when, when these wit- the initial witness who came to court um, each and every time he came to court, he was very adamant about his position. At times he would cry. And it's just human nature to, to when you're listening to someone under those circumstances, you get very um, wrapped up in what's going on with him, and, and you tend to believe them. You know, I, it's, it's unfortunate that, um, in my case, you know, witness after witness came to court, you know, with their best tire on and raised their hand and swore, you know, to tell the truth, and then proceeded to lie. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that seems to be something that um, <laughs> a, a room full of there adults... Is, there's a disconnect there, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, you know, a room full of adults should be, should, who, are, who are taking, who should be taking their jobs very seriously, yeah. should not just fall for someone under that, those circumstances and say, wait, wait, wait a minute, we feel sorry for you. Yes, this is a very emotional situation here, but what about these other issues you're talking about here that, that don't tend to add up? Yeah. And we, I think, as a society, or we just as human beings, um, just stop, stop there. And we, not not all of, us, all of us, of course, but at least in my case, it became a very, very emotional situation where this is who we want to believe because their story sounds a lot better than, than the other story. Um, right. You know, but just to add, Francie, about about um, you know the sheriff's department. You know, my my position as as just a citizen now is that. You know, I love I love um, everyone. Whatever job you, you've been hired to do, if you're doing it at, at the best of your ability, then mm-hmm. I love you. Specifically, when it comes to law enforcement, people who have and hold so much responsibility for the lives of others, if those people, I'm sure there's many great officers and people involved in that field that are doing a great job. Right. But we're, I'm specifically talking about the ones in my case and the ones who we know in other cases who just for whatever reason, do the wrong thing. You know, so I definitely want to make that clear that I'm not saying that all officers are bad officers here. And I'm sure that's what Matreya is saying. We're hoping that these people are, are officially trained by their by their by the, the people in charge, if it's either a, a county department or, or city or whatever, but we want to make sure that these people are fully trained and equipped to make sure that these mistakes never occur again. Yeah, and I, unfortunately we can't 
we can't ever take out the human element. People that want to make a case are always going to do that no matter what their training is. But, but you're right. Things need to be in place. This is a good time to take a break, you guys. So Frankie and Matreya will be right back. Just we have got to do a quick commercial break. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Recent exoneree Frankie Carrillo and the Northern California Innocence Project attorney Matreya Badami are discussing Frankie's wrongful conviction. Frankie, you were just saying about that when the guy came in to testify... What uh, did he seem credible? I mean, I know you're not objective about it, but right? As you're listening to him, did he did, was he coming across like you know he knew what he was talking about? And he was solid in his identification. Well, how did that happen? Well, you know, here's a backstory. This this young boy who at the time of of the crime was only 15 years old. Yeah. It turns out that um, after just the NCIP did some research. It turns out that this young boy had been used in, in two prior, forgive me, three prior criminal cases where he, it turns out this guy was a professional, really? a professional witness. So he we knew, call them he snitches. The <laughs> well, but ultimately in front of people yeah. who don't know this, he's just yeah. a witness that, you know, but he's been, he's been groomed by the sheriff's department to, to either play along or to know what to say, you know. So truthfully, he did sound very credible. You know, and did I, he I mean, get anything knew, in ex- did he get anything in exchange for that? What did he get in return? Do you know? I'm not sure. That, I, that I'm aware of, I'm not sure. You know, it's, okay. it's unfortunate that, you know, that's what happened to this young boy's life, you know. But as, as any sort of prize for what he did, I'm not, or money, or I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Okay. Do you know, Matreya? 
I don't. I'm not aware of any. Okay. All right. Because that's typical what happened. But yeah, okay. that is typical. This this guy in this in Frankie's case, the victim was the father of one of his good friends, and you know this was a drive-by shooting. Uh, the the father is killed, and all these teens are standing around and see it. Ha- you know, see the kill, uh-huh. the killing happen. They don't actually see the perpetrator. But I think that he was, um, you know, he he had an emotional investment in wanting to uh, to bring the person to justice as well, and so he was willing to just go with the police officers with their with their recommendation, essentially. Okay. Exactly. And so, and going, and going back to the other, the other five boys who were sort of leaving out of this equation here, one of them being the victim's son, um, the other five boys weren't shown the photo lineup until six, six months after the crime. And so Matreya is correct about they also picked a picture with directions of the initial boy. Um, but, you know, that alone, all by itself, you know, people should have been like, this doesn't look right. You're showing photographs to these five witnesses six months after the crime. Mm-hmm. And, and they're so adamant about selecting the right person. You know, as a young child, or even as an adult, six months is a long time. It is. And, and for you to be shown photographs and, and for you to be so adamant about, yeah, that's the guy, that, that raises a red flag in my opinion. Absolutely. Then, then okay, so then following, you, you, you go to trial once, there's a hung jury, so you go to trial again, and then you're Correct. convicted, and then this... New person comes forward. How did that happen? I'm not sure exactly how it all came to be, but um, the investigator was the person who had located one, someone who we used to, at the time thought he was just one of the suspects. We weren't, weren't really sure what role he played, um, but it turns out that he was the actual shooter. So mm-hmm. he, he comes to court um, on the day of my sentencing with his own private attorney, and the attorney goes into the courtroom and, and speaks for him, obviously, while he waits in the hallway. And the attorney makes a huge, you know, scene out of a movie, stop the proceedings, you know, and, and I have a client who has some vital information to share with you. And he shocks everyone in, in the courtroom. And the judge, after hearing this man's, uh, this attorney's pleas to try to, you know, stop and, and have his have his client be heard, that he was basically going to say that he was there and I wasn't, the judge refused mm-hmm. to hear it. The judge refused to hear this, this um, new evidence that was right there in the hallway. Wow. Wow. So it's, 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 a, it's a, like one tragedy it after is, another. It is. It is. It very much so. Okay. So let's fast forward to you go to prison. Correct. Um, here you are. By this time, are you, are you 17? By this time, I'm, I'm 18 years old. 18. Okay. So you're Correct. barely an adult. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Well, you, you, physically, I mean, based on just numbers, but I think psychologically and mentally, I'm, I'm still a boy. Yeah, right. Okay. And uh so you go to prison. Right. What happens next? I mean, it must have just been more hugely traumatic. I, absolutely. You know, the tragedy, the, the trauma began the day, obviously, of my arrest. But what made it even worse was the day I heard the jury come back with the guilty verdict. And I think from that moment on, psychologically, I was just numb. I wasn't able to fully comprehend what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I, when I arrived, and in my case, I went to the California Youth Authority for five years before going to state prison, okay. which is a form, which is still incarceration. Um, right. but you know, it, it was, it was hard for me. It was hard to be around a bunch of guys who were, who knew why they were there, who, who woke up every morning thinking, regretting why, you know, they had done what they, what they did and why they were incarcerated. And then there I was trying to figure out what, what, what was I doing there and to try to maneuver, 
um, a new world because ultimately prison is that it's it's a new environment where um, you're you're sent there to to pay for your you know to to be punished I suppose right. is the right phrase yeah. and so it was hard to not only keep my spirits up but also people in my life you know my family were very adamant about my father was my alibi so he knew that I was home with him. Um, but to but to just have to live a life of shame of having to be accused mm-hmm. of something you didn't do, especially a murder, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's not easy. It's definitely not an easy um, life to to have to bear. And everybody says they're innocent in prison, right? So nobody well, will listen to that. that. That's not my that's not my take on it. You know that that seems to be a common theme that people want to yeah. repeat over and over. I think initially, I think my take on that that sort of statement that people like to throw around is that. People initially plead not guilty, which is which is just a procedure to, during the court process. Right. That right. definitely does not mean that they're innocent. So I think when people say you hear someone, you know, on on the local, you know, late night news saying that he's not guilty, well, that's just a formality. But it's definitely not someone claiming to be innocent. So yeah, no, and and our experience of people that are in prison, you know, that's not true at all, that they're all claiming that they're innocent. Um, I think if you talk to prisoners, you'll find that we frequently have to interview prisoners that are witnesses in our cases. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're people that were witnesses to the cases that happened out on the street, and they're in prison for different reasons because they were involved in whatever sort of crime is going on on the street. And they are not claiming their own innocence at all. And I've had witnesses uh, that I've gone investigating that, lead me to believe that the person that I'm looking into is innocent. And I've had witnesses in the prison that have not led me to believe that my wife right. is innocent. And they're perfectly capable of, um, you know, telling the difference. They're not all claiming innocence for themselves. Mm-hmm. There, you know, there are people that are lying also. There certainly are people right. that are lying. But uh, I would say it's not at all this sort of public perception that the prisons are full of people clamoring that they that they didn't do it. And that is the public perception. Yeah, it's not my perception as an innocence lawyer. Um, <laughs> so, right. and so even the people that are asking us for help a lot of the time are not actually claiming that they're factually innocent, which is why they quickly get their cases closed. Yeah. But, you know. So, Frankie, how did you connect with the Innocence Project? So, so kind of going back to the initial, um, my initial time in, in, you know, officially sentenced and doing time, you know, I, I did, I did what most people do in, in this, these long drawn out letter campaigns where you're just looking for someone to believe in you to maybe take on your case or investigate. And I definitely was one of those um, individuals who just adamantly and did never, never stop proclaiming my innocence and try to reach out into society to someone who I thought might be interested. So for 15 years, I wrote letters, I petitioned the court, I hired attorneys, I, I did everything humanly possible, and I wasn't getting anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. Well, at least it seemed that I wasn't getting anywhere, but what I was, what was happening without me even really realizing this was that I was creating a paper trail um, and, 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 and basically um, being my determination sort of um, eventually uh, was very helpful for my attorneys when I did reach the Innocence Project to um, show them that I had not just been sitting around, but I was indeed seeking assistance all these all these years. Hmm. And so, how I initially got a hold of the Innocence Project was um, I was at Folsom State Prison, and I was working for a teacher by the name of Tony Carter who was about to retire. And I just I just was moved to ask her to help me on on um, now that she was going to be no longer working for for the um, Department of Corrections. And I just asked her, if Tony, if if 
if you come across a lawyer or, or a reporter or someone who you think might be interested in my story, would you please pass that along? And so she agreed, like I'm sure anyone else would have. And six months go by, and she's at a function in Sacramento where she comes across the attorney, Ellen Eggers, whom Atreya mentioned a little while ago. And so Ellen Eggers was my first direct connection with with um, someone who, who really believed in me. And then Ellen um, was able to um, call, I think she called Linda Starr, maybe Cookie. And then it kind of went from there. So she was able to bring these people together and um, and create this amazing team of attorneys who eventually freed me. Let me just say that Cookie is Cookie Rudolphy, at the, who's the executive director at the Innocence Project, and the and Linda Starr was on a prior show as a representative of the Innocence Project. So, okay, so right. so so you sent a letter to them. Did you? Did, well, no, did you so, do so that? Ellen send- was Ellen was more of the Ellen was more okay. of the liaison there. Okay, so yeah. When was your first contact with somebody from the Innocence Project? Just in general, any, any, any Innocence Project or the Northern California Innocence Project? The Northern California Innocence Project. Um, that must have been um, about 07. So um, I got a visit from um, Linda Starr and, and Paige Kaneb. And uh-huh. um, they were, you know, for me, I, I definitely wanted the Innocence Project to be involved. It's one thing to have a law firm like Morrison and Forrester who were eventually involved as well. But to have the the, the prestige uh, of an organization like the Innocence Project back in you, and and mainly because it's it's very clear that these these uh, the Innocence Project is very um, meticulous about making sure that the claims that they're that they're accepting or representing have been vetted and they have been looked at very carefully to make sure that they're not representing a, a guy who's not innocent. So to have um, the Innocence Project um, defending you. It's clear to everyone involved, and I'm sure many courts are aware of this, district, district attorneys are aware of this, that they go through a process to make sure that they themselves and their reputation isn't tainted by representing someone who's who's um, innocent. So instead, in my case, I'm sure they went through countless hours and days and weeks and months to make sure that they were doing the right thing, and eventually they decided that this truly was a case of innocence, and they got involved. You must have been really excited when they came to visit, actually came to visit you. Oh, I, I definitely was. You know, for yeah. many years, I'd, I'd been I'd been looking for someone to to believe in me, someone who can look at this objectively. And and so when they arrived, when they arrived to visit me, um, I was I was very moved. I was. It seemed like you know, hope had finally been not only hope, but my rescue team had arrived, and people I've been thinking about and praying about had had manifested. There, there they were in the visiting room. And you you saying that was. Uh, what year was that when they saw you? I would say that was about 07. So 07. 2007 and, sounds about right, or, or 2008, but it was. And you were exonerated in 2011? I was, correct. Okay, so it's still so a long time, the, isn't it? Right. So, you know, I can recall um, looking back now that there were times where the case seemed to have enough merit to just proceed. And that might have been. So, so initially, they. They, meaning my new legal team involving Ellen and everyone else, it took them five years to put this case together. But maybe at the three-year mark, there was enough enough evidence to prove that I was innocent. But I wanted to make sure – I didn't care if I had to spend uh, more time in prison to make sure that there was no doubt wherever you looked. And so they did, a, they did a great job to make sure that every single question, every single doubt was cleared up. There was not one single thing pointing – 
towards me that I was still in any way guilty of this. And so if it took five years, it could take, it could have taken 10 years, but um, I wanted to make sure even for myself mm -hmm. that my name was clear. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so let, let me just ask, was there an investigator that was appointed or started working on the case that worked with you or were you involved in that investigation part? So there was a couple of different attorneys, um, forgive me, uh, investigators um, hired by the Innocence Project and along with um, the other firm involved in the case. And so these are private uh, investigators. Pam Siller is one of them. There okay, yes, his, I know Pam. Pam is a great investigator. There was also Jesus Castillo, who's now deceased. Yes, I know Jesus as well. And there was, there was one or two other investigators who had maybe had a, a shorter um, role in my case, but the main investigator in my case was Pam Siller, who did an amazing job to to just connect with the witnesses and, and, and collect information as as best she could, and she did. So they went out and talked to all of these people that were the eyewitnesses. Right. So was, the, was so there my, any... My case... Oh, I'm sorry? Go ahead. I was going to say, was there any problem with these folks recanting what they originally said, or was was there a process in that? Do you know? Well, you know what? I'm not sure what exactly her her, her method was, meaning uh -huh. the training for an investigator, but I'm sure she followed that to the letter of the law and, and either knocked on doors or made phone calls. Um, but I definitely am aware that there was an attorney with her most of the time. And, you know, in my case, the only thing that was um, used to convict me were these eyewitness testimonies. So it was they were the evidence. So they went back, you know, 15 years later and said, hey, look, you're an adult now. We need to talk. And, and they just they, they spoke about the case. And, 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 you know, one thing that moves me about just the resilience of just human beings is that, you know, people obviously make mistakes all the time. And what these six witnesses could have done very easily is play the role of, you know what, I don't remember, I don't yeah. know what you're talking about, I don't want to talk right. to you, and just shut the door. But instead, they were they were compelled, maybe by their own guilty conscience, or their, you know, that they've been living this lie for so many years, that they came, they came clean. You know, that's, that seems to be something that hasn't been addressed enough. And I think in my case, that these people who initially did, made a huge mistake that I paid for, but ultimately, just to help me sort of just you know live my life the way I want to live it now, I want to kind of commend them for doing that because they could have definitely just not spoken, you know. No question, and I think that is what typically happens rather than people coming forward and admitting that they either lied on the witness stand or that they were wrong. Right. So, yeah, right. the fact – you're right. They need to have a lot of credit for coming forward even – it, though it's years and years later, I agree with you, Absolutely. and and being willing, I guess, to testify, to actually come to court and testify is amazing. One of the, one of the most compelling testimonies during my habeas corpus hearing, the ultimate trial sort of that that freed me, was the testimony of Damien, who was the victim's son. So Damien was 16 years old when he saw his father be shot, and, and eventually he was murdered. Um, so to see him now come back all these years later. Um, as a father, as as a as a, a man with a career, you know he's a he's a husband and so on, and to see him um, get you know witness him now, all these years later, get in you know sit there on the stand and confess. Now he's the one confessing to his to his to his mistake. Yeah. To you know to not to say it was a crime, 
but to his to his heirs, you know, and and to see him um, be so adamant about the fact that he made a mistake and he feels bad for what he did. I mean, I applaud him for doing that. And is he the one that said he was willing to be punished for it? That was no. Um, that wasn't Damien. So the the, the 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 now man who said that was um was Scott, who was the initial uh, witness. Who oh, he's the guy. Sort yeah. of, he entangled me in all of this, right? Um, so he was, you know, it was a very emotional um, day in court when during his testimony, he sort of just like looked over at me and and he he, he gave this very heartfelt um, testimony to everyone in the court and he apologized to my family who was there. And he felt very, really bad. I guess he had really been thinking about the, what he had, the, the the gravity of what he had done. Mm-hmm. And he just looked over at me and, and he just asked me to, to forgive him. And, and I kind of stood like in another scene in the movie. And, and I just said, I forgive you, Scott. I forgive you. And 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 it was just, it was a, a very humanizing moment for all, for everyone who was there. Yeah, everyone in the courtroom was crying, including, I don't believe the judge was crying, but the bailiff was crying, the court's clerk was crying, the uh, court yeah. reporter was crying, certainly our whole legal team was crying. It's, uh, it's a pretty unbelievable case. It does sound like it needs to be a movie, Frankie. Right. Frankie can no, star I... as himself, too. <laughs> Frankie can star as himself, that's right. Uh, I'll like, like George Clooney to play my role, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> in an abundance of modesty. <laughs> That's right. That's great. We need to take a break, you guys. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. IRB Search is where quality matters. IRB provides access to the best online data for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB data gives you strength in numbers, allowing you to access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified, and you'll receive a two-week free trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We're back to discuss the wrongful conviction of Frankie Carrillo and the amazing work performed by the Northern California Innocence Project. And we were just talking about this amazing uh, emotional hearing that um, when Frankie was released, and I can't, I just, uh, I can imagine just how powerful that was that day with that one witness who clearly accepted responsibility for sending somebody away to prison, spending 19 years in prison. So... Um, that had to be just amazing. Right. No, it was, it was an amazing experience. You know, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, I, I couldn't have, and no one could have imagined it unfolding the way it did, but eventually it, it, it just came, all came together and it worked out. And I really, you know, one of the things that moves me now as a free man to be able to define my life is to, is to use, um, the attorneys like, like Linda and Paige, and, and Matreya and Ellen and all the other attorneys involved in my case as, as, um, as templates of people who, who do their work correctly, people who, you know, are very compassionate about what they're doing and they follow through. And I feel that who better to guide me with my new life than these amazing friends who are now in my life who showed me through their own work that if you do it correctly, Justice works because justice, in my opinion, is a process. It's not. It's not an ending. It's not a destination. Justice is the process that we all hope that, while it's unfolding, is done correctly. Yeah, unfortunately, it often becomes a task of winning or losing instead of mm-hmm. truth and justice. Um, right, and we see that all the time in the courts exactly. every single day. Unfortunately, but uh, I'm so glad you were exonerated, Frankie. Uh, so, thank you. What are you, what are you doing now? What am I doing now? Um, I am a full time student at Loyola Marymount University here in Los Angeles, so that uh-huh. takes the majority of my time. That's uh, it's it's a lifelong dream that I've that I've um, always wanted. So I definitely am living that up. Um, besides that, you know, I, I I think I've fallen into the category of being just an advocate for the underdog and and being try and be a good example for as an exoneree to um, send out a message to society and to the to the public at large that you know errors within the justice system occur all the time and what seems to be the, something that I tend to want to just stress more with my behavior than with my words is the fact that you know I spent it was actually 20 years in, in prison not 19 but you know it's, okay. it's regardless it's a very long time and I think people have the misconception that people who are in prison, for that amount of time have been, who are damaged and are not worthy of being among society. And, and there's a lot of different just, um, wrongful perceptions about people who've, who've spent time in prison. And I definitely want to change that. I definitely want to be involved in, in a movement that says, Hey, look, prison is, is definitely a harsh environment, but, you know, um, we shouldn't count these people out, you know. So one of my exactly. another thing that I'm involved in is obviously um, the campaign to end the death penalty here in California, and we got very close this past November, mm-hmm. and we'll definitely try again some other some other time. So, uh, what's your objective for your education? What are you trying to accomplish with that? 
So at this point, I'm just doing my undergrad. And if I end up going to law school, that seems to be something that's that's been on my radar for a while as well. Um, but I think I'm either going to major in, um, in sociology along with maybe political science. And I think that I want to combine what I experienced as an adult, as, as a wrongfully convicted man, and try to mesh that with um, some education, obviously, to try to either do something to... Um, you know, help make this place a better, make this world a better place. And if, and if my ex- example of, of resilience or my example of, of being able to survive such a tragedy can somehow be helpful either through a book or through um, public speaking or coming on your show like, like I am now, Francie, to kind of talk about these things. And mm-hmm. I want to, I want to help. That's, that's great. That's fabulous. So, so I'm interested, Frankie. What kind of obstacles have you encountered since you've been out? Um, well, I think I think the obstacles that I've encountered have been more psychological within myself. Um, I, you know, one thing that I have to point out right away is that um, every single person who I've ran into and met and come across directly or indirectly have been so kind and caring. Um, about what happened to me and, and no one has been judgmental, at least not in my face. Um, so, so when it comes to just merging back in society, it's been very, very smooth for me. And I'm very grateful for that. I have a great, um, family and, and friends in my life. Um, but mm-hmm. I think, I think the the barriers, the psychological barriers have been, um, just, just the, the, the fact that I was away for such a long time when it comes to technology, when it comes to, uh, mainly for time management. You know, one one thing that that's stripped away from you in prison is having to manage your own life and manage your time and make sure things are are taken care of. That's sort of just automatic there. Um, so it's it's definitely an exercise that I work on every day to make sure that um, you know I do what I have to do. And definitely as a, as a college student, I have to make sure that you know that's definitely as a college student is definitely helping me exercise time management with with exams and reading assignments sure. and. So, wow. Well, good for you. And you, I mean, I can certainly see that you would be a powerful advocate in whatever direction you decided to take, whether it be becoming a lawyer or becoming a social activist or whatever that could be. I can certainly see that that, uh, that's in your future. Well, you know, one of the things that's also my future I would love, and this is a dream, but why not, since we're just talking about the, the, the future, is I would love to get involved in politics. With with the sense of like that can be a place where where I can have the biggest impact for change. Um, so who, who knows? Who knows what the future has in store for me? But I'm I'm just happy to be home and free, be free and have my name cleared, and just to be just to be alive. That's great. So let me go. Let's go back to Matreya. Matreya, um, let's talk a little bit more about this eyewitness identifications because it was so key in Frankie's case. Right. I mean, in Frankie's case, it was the entirety of the evidence against him. It's a real extreme. There was zero physical evidence, forensic evidence, anything else. And he had an alibi um, in that he literally was somewhere else with his family. Um, and you think about the power of six people coming in and saying they saw him mm-hmm. commit this killing that in le- it didn't matter that there wasn't any evidence to support that in the physical world, and there was oh. actually evidence to contradict it in terms of his alibi witnesses. Um, but the jury was convinced because these eyewitnesses were so certain. And um, 
the, that is the real, the critical problem with eyewitness identification. The, the evidence is very compelling to juries and yet it frequently is very unreliable evidence. And there are, uh, practices, police practices that we now know via 30 years of robust social science research can actually contribute to greater reliability of eyewitness evidence mm-hmm. and can and can undercut some of the inherent problems. There are some problems that we can't fix. There are variables that affect the reliability of the eyewitness ID. Um, some of them are called system variables, and those are the variables that the legal system can address. There are things that can be done to change how the police do the collection of the evidence that makes it more reliable and less prone to being somehow manipulated manipulated either intentionally or unintentionally mm-hmm. but somehow you know affected by the investigator himself and then there are what are called estimator variables those are the things that nobody can really do anything about we can only estimate their impact for example the lighting that was the, the, at the time it was dark the right. distance um, cross-racial issues so the, it is a fact that's been demonstrated by numerous studies that People of two different races have a hard time identifying one another's facial features. Right. doesn't matter which races. If they're not from the same race, it's going to be a less reliable identification. In Frankie's case, it was cross-racial as well. So the estimator variables there were a big deal. There was someone in a moving car. It was dark. There was an angle. There was distance. There was cross-racial. So the likelihood of there being an accurate identification was very, very slim based on simply estimator variables that we can't actually fix, right? Mm-hmm. If someone has a weapon, there's something called weapons focus. So if you're even at close range to someone who's robbing you at gunpoint, the witness, the victim is very likely to be focused on that weapon and For not sure. focused on the facial features of the perpetrator. So that is another estimator variable. But the system variables are the things that actually can be addressed by our system. And so th- the social science has has really been very consistent and developed. A, there are scientists have come up with a series of recommendations that are pretty well agreed upon by almost everyone in the mainstream of this particular area of social science. The primary one is that identification be performed blind, meaning that the police officers or detectives who do the ID procedure, who do the photo lineup or a live lineup, do not know who the suspect is. So if police have a suspect in mind, then the the person who administers the photo lineup or the live lineup is a police officer who doesn't actually know which one of the six people is the suspect. Mm-hmm. So it just needs to be a different officer. If there's a shortage of manpower, you can use photographs and put them in manila envelopes and shuffle them or folders and shuffle them and then number the backs so that the person, the witness is looking through the envelopes and looking at the photos and they can just identify by a number, but the, the officer doesn't actually see which picture they're looking at at any given time because it's in a folder. That's a way of blinding the administrator of the proceeding without needing an additional officer. And we're and, talking about individual photographs rather right. than six on a page. And, and that's, and that's the second part. So blind administration or call, it's called double blind, meaning the witness doesn't know which one is the suspect and the person administering the identification proceeding doesn't know which one is the suspect. Then the other thing in terms of one photo at a time is sequential. So the classic photo spread, the six pack is six photos all around the same, you know, all the same size. The face is all around the same size that the witness is shown at once, simultaneous in a spread. And what they do 
intentionally or not, is something called relative judgment. We rely on a relative judgment. We look at these six photos, even if we're admonished that the person who actually committed the crime might not be in the photos. We look at the photos and we try to think which one of these people looks the most, most like the like. perpetrator, right? Yes. So it becomes a multiple choice exam. Yeah. And we want to get it right. We want to have an answer. And science has demonstrated that, demonstrated that in perpetrator absent Photo spreads, meaning the actual perpetrator isn't there, such as in Frankie's photo spread. You have six pictures. The actual perpetrator is not one of the six pictures. Mm-hmm. Frankie, the misidentified suspect, is one of the perpetrators, um, right. is one of the photos, right? Right, right. So the person is going to go, and in, in Frankie's case, it's different. The police directed Scott to a particular picture. But if the witness has seen the perpetrator and describe the perpetrator and they look something like the suspect that the police pick and they put them in the photo spread, even if they're not the actual perpetrator, they're going to look the most like the perpetrator of these six photos and the likelihood of them being selected is much higher despite they're not actually being involved in the crime. So what we've found is that you know, people are much more likely to guess when the six photos are presented at once, and they're going to guess the person that looks the most like. If they're shown the photos one at a time, they use absolute judgment. Each photo is compared to their own memory, and they're less likely to guess, especially if they don't know how many pictures they're going to see. Exactly. Um, And so the thing is, you can't, it's critical that I say this, you cannot do sequential photo presentation without blinding the administrator, because then you actually put... If you have sequential photos and the administrator knows who the suspect is, the the impulse to create an, some kind of cue is almost, uh, you know, un, uh, unavoidable. The, they might hold the photo out longer. They might point, whatever. Not even, in t- literally not intentionally, but they know which photo they think is the suspect. So you have to have a blind administrator if you're going to do sequential presentation. Yeah, but Matreya, best cost, yeah. excuse me, Matreya, we are getting notice that they're going to cut us off. They're right? cut us off. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so okay. let me just say next week, uh, thank you, Matreya. Thank you, sure. Frankie. Uh, thank next you. week is going to be John Stoll, convicted of 17 counts of child molestation, sentenced to 40 years in prison and exonerated. Sheila Klopper and Linda Starr from NCIP will tell their story, his story. Uh, so tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. Bye, guys. Bye. You've been listening to PI's Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.